Hello, hello everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SAS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about exploring investing, tr- investing trends and fundraising going into 2024. Today, we have our guest, Michael Treskow, joining us. Michael is a partner at Eight Roads Ventures based out of London, London, UK, where they're focused on venture and growth investments in technology companies across Europe and Israel. Previously, Michael invested in tech companies at Excel in London and Warburg Pincus, both in San Francisco and New York. He received a bachelor from Yale University and an MBA from Stanford as well, School of Business. So welcome, Michael. Super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Akio. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. So uh, just before we, we get in, we'd love a little bit more background on you know what stage you guys are investing. Right? So I understand your venture growth investment. Uh, just to give background for people listening in, uh, looking for to to have an idea of where you invest. What does kind of your investment thesis look like right now? Yeah, look, so I think a little bit about Atros, right? So we started about 50 years ago in Boston, back then called Fidelity Ventures, and have since then expanded internationally and become an independent company, Atros. So I'm part of our London team focused on Europe and Israel, as you said, and then I have colleagues in India, Japan, China, and the US. So a pretty global perspective. And the core focus really is on supporting startups that have found product market fit, right? So I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about going from zero to one, and we focus on the journey from one to a hundred, right? So you've built a product, you've found customers who like the product and derive value, and now it's all about scaling. So that's where we come in. And typically, when we partner with startups, they're generating revenue, they have paying customers, and it's probably somewhere between a Series A and a Series B. Okay. And, and what are you typically, are you guys leading the round? How, how, what is your typical check size, um, just for, for, for context? Yeah. So we'll typically invest somewhere between 10 to 25 million initially, and then continue supporting the company as they raise more capital. We don't really care whether we lead the round or not. It ends up being the case most often just simply because of the round dynamics. So you will raise 30, 40, 50 million insiders want to participate in the round, and there ends up typically being space left for one lead. Got it. So it's a it's an interesting space you guys are in. It's between Series A and B, what we're seeing in the market is, I mean, that's kind of been a situation where in the market it's there's just been less less uh, funding available. It's been more challenging as, as what we've seen uh, for 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 founders to get uh, financing or, or raising. I'm curious to see what you guys are seeing because it seems like they're struggling to get their um, Series B or, or above round or even you know exit. So that stage is where we're seeing a bit of issue. So what's been kind of your biggest filter, whether that's um, you know, growth or, or other um, that's helping you differentiate just for people listening in to help you know, stand out and understand how to you know pitch you guys, et cetera? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's a good question, right? So essentially at the stage where we invest, right? And let's let's say it's a series B just for, for clarity, right? At that point, we're really looking for proof points of product market fit and scalable execution, right? So we're past the point where it's a great idea. We're, you know, past the point of initial traction. And essentially, it's not as easy to hide anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And conversely, of course, then when companies are doing well, 
it's much more clear that they're doing well, right? Like at earlier stages, it's a bit tougher to tell sometimes which one is the stronger company or opportunity. By the time it gets to Series B, it's much more clear, right? There are proof points, there are track records, you can speak to customers, you have um, sales metrics that you evaluate and so on and so forth, right? And so I think that means that if you have a company that's doing well, it's going to be as easy, I think, to raise funding today as it was before, right? I think the tricky part is that certainly during COVID, there was a bit more leniency um, at this stage, and there was a bit more open-mindedness in saying, let's, you know, let's go do the Series B a little bit earlier, let's extrapolate a little bit more. And I think some of that has gone away. Right. So I would say, you know, for the most part, we're probably back to where we were pre-COVID, right? Mm -hmm. As far as uh, the bar. And clearly that now feels much higher than it was during COVID. But actually, relatively speaking, if you were um, investing before COVID, not much has changed, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, obviously this is a, seems like a challenging time for, for both investor startups. But like you said, it's just kind of regulating back to what it was pre-COVID time. Um, but for those who are maybe struggling, they're kind of running out of runway, they're in between that, you know, Series A or, or looking to raise a Series A or B, what are some tips or strategies you can help, uh, you know, suggest to them to help them overcome some of these hurdles right now in the market? If any. Mm -hmm. Look, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a tough one just because it's such a generic one. I mean, I would probably say fundamentally, I would probably bucket companies into three, right? The, the There's one bucket that's doing really well, right? And they're receiving the signal from, from the markets and they're going to go out and they're going to raise a great round, right? Um, and then there are companies that are clearly not doing well, right? And they have some tough decisions to make. The you know the, the main question there is can you get to profitability and do you want to right so I think one should consider it's an investment of of time and opportunity cost you know at some point you know what are the most attractive options right is it to get to profitability or is it perhaps to say look it's it, it just wasn't meant to be and let me do go start something new right and then the toughest ones are the ones in the middle where. It's going kind of well, but people are not lining up. But it's going well enough where, you know, maybe um, you do want to continue investing in growth and, and maybe, you know, profitability at all costs may not be the right solution, right? And that's probably where it's very context dependent, right? And that's where I think the board um, is really the most impactful, right? And that's also where you know, some honest conversation, some honest feedback is most useful, right? If you can get some, you know, some investors to give you some concrete milestones and things they're looking for, then you can focus on those. But I think as always, you know, it's a trade-off. There is, you know, getting the next venture around is not, you know, the greatest accomplishment in the world for an entrepreneur, right? It may not be the right thing to do. And, you know, I think fundamentally in the long run, all of these companies need to figure out a way to become profitable, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that for some of them, it will have to be sooner rather than later. Yeah. 
that's that's interesting. Yeah, that middle bucket is kind of also where we're seeing most of our uh, opportunities come in. There's a lot of good, you know, businesses right now out there um, where they're kind of in between. They're like, do we go profitable? Do we raise? They're, they're kind of in between trying to decide. And it's not clear that, you know, from, from the markets and going out, they're not getting clear signal that they can raise that around where, you know, their investors are happy at the considering the previous round, but then now they're like, but they still have a good company numbers looking good, but unfortunately they just don't have the capital to continue scaling. So it's a, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. What, what, do, what are you kind of excited about or what are you kind of looking for going into kind of 2024? Is there any certain industries you guys are really focusing on? Is there certain verticals you guys really like? And especially with, you know, considering the emergence of AI into this year, how are you guys looking at all of that and, and you know, thinking about SaaS in general? Yeah. So we are generalist, right? So I would say probably SaaS or B2B really is about three quarters of what we do. Right. Um, and within that, or really anywhere in technology, AI has been having a very big impact. Right. And so I would say we're like everyone excited about AI. I would say the one thing that is undoubtedly clear is that end customers will be benefiting greatly from all the innovation that's happening. Right. I mean, you and I uh, are already benefiting, right, be it ChatGPT or be it uh, some maybe generative videos that uh, you might be creating on the side and, and a whole host of other tools. And more and more of that magic is coming to the enterprise, right? And I think the real question for us probably is, aside from the infrastructure providers, be it AWS or NVIDIA, who's going to capture some of that value that is being generated? Right. And, you know, I think there's been plenty written about at this point about the various layers of the ecosystem. And I think the gist of it is it's too soon to tell. Right. So I think we're trying to spend a lot of time meeting with founders and understanding how the landscape is evolving. Right. And ultimately trying to to make sure that we partner with companies and founders who look like they might be able to stand the test of time and build sustainable companies, right? And once you go beyond that, there's a ton of opportunities, right? I mean, software is still eating the world. Uh, there still continues to be a shift from offline to online, despite maybe, you know, all of us thinking that it's been underway for a while. The shift to mobile is still continuing. So some of these big picture trends are going to be going on, but I think AI is enabling some of these innovations to become much more user-friendly and much more exciting and create this wow experience, right? That I think all of us uh, ha have experienced when you, you type in a few lines and then uh, ChatGPT uh, gives you a, a quite sensible answer, right? Uh, or goes back and forth with you, right? This, this magic moment. And I think that's gonna be fundamentally, I think, changing how we engage with software. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, some of the AI companies raising, you know, capital at insane valuations right now, I guess, some of the hype compared to some of the previous, um, you know, new emerging trends. Are you guys also participating in some of these rounds that you're seeing? And are you seeing some of these, you know, valuations that, you know, sometimes 100x or whatnot, or even with very little revenue? We're looking at all of them very closely. Mm. So far, we have not been the ones who are leading some of these rounds, 
Yeah. Mainly because we're not quite clear yet on how that market is going to evolve. Yeah. Right. And I think some of these are going to be phenomenal companies. And with some of these, as usual, we're going to be um, beating ourselves up that we didn't invest when we had the opportunity. Mm. Um, and with others, it's going to be less. So, it, you know, it, it remains to be seen. I mean, I think the, the, you know, the most fascinating aspect of this new wave really is that in many instances, incumbents tend to benefit disproportionately rather than new entrants, right? So unlike some of the previous platform shifts, this is one where you look at the Adobe's and Salesforce's of this world. They're doing a pretty good job relatively quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And they not, may not be as quick as some of the new entrants into the space, but they have the distribution and customer trust advantage and they are capitalizing on that, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that's another aspect that makes this a little bit trickier to call and you have to be a little bit more careful, but the opportunity is clearly there, right? These are gigantic markets and 10 years from now, there are going to be companies that have been built up on this trend. They're going to be very successful. And of course, we want to be part of that. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. You know, considering the the overall you know, startup ecosystem, you know, there's been a lot of hype of, of folks are trying to get into this space now, especially with AI. A lot of a lot of new companies are emerging, which is which is exciting. Um, but then there's also, you know, going up all the way to public markets, we're seeing, you know, the valuations dropping, but also, you know, less IPOs. Um, you know, how, how are you seeing that kind of top-down impact from all the way from public markets to startup fundraising? Are where you guys at down to you know the overall startup ecosystem? And what are some of the effects? Yeah. Well, and look, so I think we've had a bit of a roller coaster, right? So yeah. um we had a nice bull market, then you had the COVID shock. And then the COVID shock turned actually into uh, an unexpected gift, right? And exuberance followed now by another shock and stabilization, right? So I just uh, used a lot of pretty extreme words to describe what happened within the span of about, you know, 36 months, right? So this sort of volatility, I think, is pretty difficult for a startup that, you know, is trying to lay out a multi-year strategy. Right. Um, and, and is trying to make an assumption of the future based on historical patterns. And these historical patterns are changing drastically every six months or, or 12 months. Right. Um, and so I think the good news is that we have for the last year seen a bit of a stabilization, right? Um, in in the public markets. And I think that's something that we're also seeing reflected in the underlying fundraising environment, right? Um for for private companies. And I think, you know, the rule of thumb is the more mature you are as a company and the closer you are to, you know, the size of these public companies, the more it matters to you what is happening with these companies, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, give you an example, you know, you, you've, uh, you're a series D or a series E company and you're thinking about going public and your public comparable company against which you might be measuring yourself goes up in value by 50% or goes down in value in 50%. You're paying very close attention to that because that translates very directly 
into how you might be assessed in that environment. Um, so that's the one extreme. The other extreme is that you just started a company and you raised your seed around um, that is going to be completely disrupting that company that just went up and down 50% in value. But that disruption is going to take you about 10 years. How much do you care about the value of that company having gone up and down? Probably much less, right? Because most of the value of your company today is this option that you might achieve greatness, right? And your upside case and your downside case have a huge range of outcomes in between them, right? You mm -hmm. might become that public company or we may never hear from you again, right? right? And so, you know, as an investor in a really early stage seed company, I'm less bothered by the valuations of this public company, right? Because I'm investing still at a relatively low valuation where if this company is successful, I'm going to do great, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm paying a lot of the value that I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about devaluation is about, well, what would success look like in this upside case? Mm -hmm. If I'm the series D or E company, the distance between upside and downside case is much smaller, right? Because Correct. there's years of track record. Things are not going to fall off the cliff, hopefully, but it's also not going to be a hockey stick from here on, right? From here on, it's much more predictable what the upside and downside looks like. And as a result, this option value has diminished much more in my evaluation. And I'm focused much more on the public comps, right? And so to come back to your original question, what we have seen is that as the markets fell off the cliff, for lack of a better word, late stage funding has been significantly impacted right? Mm -hmm. Because all of these companies raised a previous round that was tied to valuations that today are maybe half of what they were. And they really need to figure out a way to grow into those valuations, right? And and for the most part, the, the difference has been so drastic that it will take them a little while to get there, even if they're doing well and everything is on plan. But, you know, they just need to continue working and this is not the time for them to raise if they have access to you know capital otherwise and you know hopefully haven't spent the money that they raised so that part of the market has been quiet on the seed stage not much has changed right because again it's all about the idea and the founder and the option value that derives from those two and public markets going to matter in 5 6 years so I think it's fine. And then the other effect that you're seeing is that investors who are not seeing many opportunities in the Series A rounds, for example, are now going early stage because that market is still vibrant. So we actually have more capital now looking at seed stage opportunities. And so that market is still doing, still doing okay. And I think the question there is how long will it take until they do see some of these uh, situations emerge and they'll see, well, some of these companies were able to raise a seed round, but maybe the series A got trickier and then series B got even more tricky, right? Because there is some dependency here, right? And I think exactly. we're kind of now in this, in this digestive period where we're seeing some of these dynamics play out, right? Where the market for series C, series D has been awfully quiet. The seed market has been vibrant. But over time, these will converge because at some point, these seed companies will need to raise their A, B, C. And so the temperature among the seed investors 
is going to be impacted by the temperature among the Series A and Series B investors. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Long answer. But, no, I, I completely get it. So one, one, you know, so three three hundred plus companies you guys invested in eleven billion dollars asset under managers. You guys have a lot of data of what works, what doesn't work, and now you're at a stage. So you're kind of at a better point than maybe folks. But you also have uh, companies within your portfolio who are maybe now at later stage, right? They've they've gone on to yeah. Series B and C. You know, so there's yeah. different options here. One is, you know, you said go profitable. Two is, you know, you shut down. Three is you try an IPO or continue to raise the next round or you try to delay it, you know, some kind of bridge round. Another option is also considering an exit. Um, <laughs> how many of uh, maybe your companies or what, what are you suggesting to folks or what kind of companies would you suggest that as an option to who are listening in? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's all a matter of comparing your alternatives, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think there are situations where an exit, it's about time, right? Yeah, I'm trying and to think when there's like a clear while. time, right? Where it's just like, this, yeah. is, this is probably just makes the right, like comparing all the options, this just seems yeah. to be the, yeah, you know? I mean, look, I mean, the way we kind of think about it as yeah. an investor, right? Like, so we are mm -hmm. not necessarily time bound. We think of ourselves as very patient capital. We have companies on our portfolio where we've partnered with them for over 10 years and we continue to be um, very supportive of them because they continue to do well, right? And, you know, in fact, the way things go in early stage oftentimes is that it takes a little while to realize which, which of the companies are doing well um, because they're able to grow sustainably, right? So not the first, you know, go from 1 million to 3 million to 6 million to 7 million, but what happens when they are in the 50 to 100 million range, right? Do they continue growing, right? And at that point, you know, if they're continuing to grow and they're continuing to accrue value, we love but still backing those companies and being patient, right? I think the question becomes, if one, growth is tapering off and it becomes no longer as exciting, or which is a much more favorable situation, if you get that inbound offer that just is really compelling and that rewards you for future growth, right? Mm -hmm. And th those are kind of the interesting ones. Those are the really fun stories, right? Where, where you start saying, look, we weren't planning on selling the company, right? But here's an offer that is very tempting and that really makes us think hard and also makes us think about what we could do as part of this new company, right? Are there things that, you know, where today we are constrained for whatever reason that that would be available to us, right? Um, so I think these things come in different flavors. You know, I think the, the saying is good companies are bought and not sold, right? So ideally, you would want to have people approach you, but for the most part, that doesn't happen magically, right? So sure, there's a couple of companies that are doing so well, they're about to go public, they file um, their prospectus, and then they're um, getting an acquisition offer last minute because it's just so obvious. But for the most part, I, you know, like the, I think the advice we give to our portfolio is get to know the potential partners and acquirers, right? Actually establish relationship with them. Typically, it's individual people who make these acquisition decisions. It's not some amorphous organization. And people like to work with other people, right? So That's if true. you and I know each other and we have over time built a relationship and you've seen how I work, I've seen how you work, it's much more likely that we will come to some sort of partnership than 
if you see you know, a page of numbers and all of a sudden you have to get comfortable with something like that, right? It's the same thing that, by the way, holds for for investors, you know, where we try to meet founders much earlier than when they're fundraising because we want to establish a relationship. We are investing in people, right? And we love getting to know founders and being able to share a little bit about ourselves, right? So that it then feels a little bit more thoughtful and planned as opposed to, you know, the uh, ready, start, go um, sort of race where you all of a sudden, you know, speed dating, met for the first time, 20 investors in a span of four weeks, you you, you then, uh, you, you know, hit it off with one of them, but it's not quite the same as when you've known that investor maybe for a year or two, right? Completely, Yeah. I mean, that's the, the I'll, I'll wrap up with this kind of question, you know, so the big piece is, you know, we're looking at growth, we're looking at metrics, we're looking at presentation, but at the end of the day, investors, we're investing in the people. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of factors, right? Humans are the most probably more complicated than the business itself. But I'd love to hear from you. Is there some kind of common, um, you know, traits or, or something that you've seen among what stands out of high performers or the kind of the top performers of the entrepreneurs that you do invest in and, and see that, you know, you, you continue on to invest in? Oh, that's a great question. I wish there was a list. Uh, I really, I really do. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, um, I would say, look, so, so, so one, I think among our portfolio, if I looked at the companies that have overachieved expectations or underachieved them, people are by far the biggest difference, right? And that's what makes my job so exciting. And then also sometimes so frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple, I think, of characteristics that I have observed as being helpful with the caveat that this is a space where outliers confirm the rules. So it's going to be very easy to point to an example that is just the opposite for what I just said. And I'm very willing to, to admit that. And that's also what kind of makes this job interesting, right? But I think the ability to hire and more importantly retain people is critical, right? So, and we definitely look for that when we are speaking to to entrepreneurs, right? Where we look at what people they've hired, we've looked at um, who it is that they're speaking to, and we speak to the management team how they think about the company and. You know, we check things like Glassdoor and sort of all the usual reviews, right? Because fundamentally, that's what it's about, right? If you're a team of 50, 100 people and you want to grow to 500 people or 1,000 people, you're not going to be able to do it alone, right? And you need to be able to attract people and more importantly, retain them, right? And the retention part is the much trickier part. And I think a lot of people focus on the acquiring part and they just hired someone, right? But the really tricky part is to say, how do you make someone successful in your organization, right? And how do you allow them to perform at their highest level, right? Um, so I think that's probably, you know, that's a that's a really key part. I think customer obsession is another really important one, right? Which is to say, especially when it comes to B2B software, you're typically solving existing problems right? And your number one job is to understand what exactly is that problem and what is the solution that customers are looking for, right? 
this is, you know, this is not the same as Steve Jobs telling consumers that they now need a phone without uh, keys. And eventually he's right. For the most part, it's it's a much more feedback-driven process, right? And not to say that Apple is not, they are, but um, but I think it's it's much more saying, do you focus on your customers? And have you then created this feedback loop between product, sales, and customer success that has an impact on your product roadmap, that you're building something that customers want and that you're prioritizing things in a way that aligns what customers want with your capabilities, with your revenue targets, right? And this prioritization, uh, you know, is, is really important, uh, but it all starts by saying we're trying to solve a problem, right? And then the third one of that is to say, are you the right person to solve that problem, right? Do you have founder product fit, founder problem fit, whatever people call it, right? Why, why are you the person who is going to be best equipped to solve that problem, right? And I think there, you know, I love coming out of these meetings and understanding some sort of differentiated insight that the person has, right? And really saying something, okay, some of what you said was obvious and I got that even knowing nothing about it. But one of the things that you said and the perspective you had on it was just really intriguing, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of, I think, what typically stands out, right? Is that you know your domain so well, you've spoken to so many customers when you embarked on building this product and you understood why the problem that is so big hasn't yet been solved or hasn't been solved successfully, right? Because the first question is, if the problem is so obvious, how come it hasn't been solved already five to 10 years ago, right? Um, And so I think that answer, you know, requires a bit more thought a lot of times that that is given. And it also talks a lot about differentiation and modes and all those buzzwords that people like to talk about. That makes sense. So problem, so customer obsessed and then there's problem obsessed. And I love that, you know, thinking of what, what differentiates it because I mean, people always think about credentials and maybe your background, your education, which, you know, may be fitting, but there are people who, you know, I think if you're, my opinion is if you're problem obsessed more so, I think you can, you know, find things that even people with credentials wouldn't even be able to see. Right. So, um, I mean, hundred percent, I think, look, um, I, I think credentials take on a very different meaning at that point, right? And I would say, you know, the other thing, of course, by the time you arrive at sort of a series B, it's no longer about ideas, it's about execution, right? So you you want to have the foundational idea, but, you know, we talked about it earlier in the conversation. At that point, the proof is in the pudding, you know? Were you able, you might have had that great insight and you might have had, um, you know, the will to pursue it, but have you been able to do it, right? See the results. Yeah. 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 Love it. So this has been great, Michael. Um, love it. This is awesome insights. Uh, we'd love to shift gears and move towards the, uh, the rapid fire personal questions. You ready for that? Oh yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. What's, uh, Michael, what's one activity you enjoy outside of work that gets you into a flow state? I don't know about a flow state, but I, I wrestle which is a really random one. And I know I'm supposed to say kite surfing or something like that, but jujitsu, it's wrestling. Yeah. It's yeah. wrestling. Awesome. That's an intense sport. So I think boxing and wrestling, I guess, are one of the most, you know, 
taxing tax taxing uh, um, sports, right? Just for it's like, taxing, and also it doesn't really leave room for your thoughts to wander. You mm. got to be in the moment, otherwise yeah. it doesn't end well. And you're going to be in a lot of pain. Yeah. <laughs> What's a one piece of advice you wish you had known? And if you can go back, you would tell your younger self, say 20, 25 year old self. Yeah, that's always a good one. You know, abstracting from maybe myself, I would say taking more calculated risks and betting more on myself. I think, mm. you know, I've, I've tended to err on the more conservative side. And I think in hindsight, I could have been a bit more courageous at certain points in my life, but that's easy to say now. That was easy to say, but now, now you know the risk, right? It's always, you know, trying to understand what it is when you're younger, it just seems so much bigger, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges you guys are currently facing or yourself, um, you know, to continue to grow eight road ventures, your portfolio and, and the performance, or is there anything that keeps, keeps you up at night these days? Look, we practice what we preach, right? I mean, I said, the importance of attracting and retaining talent is the number one we reevaluate founders, and that applies to us as well, right? So I think for us, it's all about the team. We are not constantly hiring people. So for us, it's about really attracting the right individuals, but more importantly, setting them up for success at eight roads, right? And I think that's the number one priority and, and where we invest quite a lot of time and resources to make sure that our team really has access to all of the best resources, mentors, and are able to become the best investors they can be. It's an art. I mean, uh, that's what I've learned over the years. I mean, just investing in, like you said, you know, it's humans behind it and understanding what yep. you're behind this market. It's, it's an art itself. So yeah, love it. Well, speaking of resources, what are some of the best, uh, maybe three resources that can be books, mentors, or people you fall in the space who's been, who've been most instrumental to your success over these last few years? Yeah, look, that's a good question. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by some great people um, throughout my career. And, you know, you, you've listed off some of the organizations I've been part of, uh, all of which I think very highly of and who have invested in me throughout, right? And I would say as far as information sources. I am more of a reader than a listener. So some of the amazing podcasts out there and yours, of course, as well. I, I typically I'm better at consuming content and information uh, in red form. And so Twitter has been really uh, fun. Uh, Substack makes my life much easier. And so I just read a, a lot of stuff and it's typically short form content you know, a lot of the books out there, I think, could be a blog with a bit of editing, but that might be a controversial opinion. We don't have to spend too much time on that. I agree. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of fluff that could be summarized. Yeah. What does, uh, you know, Michael, you've done well with your career, uh, you know, you're doing well with your portfolio, with, but, you know, what does success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, business, financial, life, there's, there's no right answer. Yeah, look, I mean, I think day to day, I feel very privileged to be a trusted advisor and you know trusted is is a important one here to some great entrepreneurs and whenever i feel that i've been able to help them on their scaling journey i think that's tremendously satisfying and of course whenever i feel that i've failed in that that's 
tremendously frustrating. But uh, focusing on the positives, I think I, you know, I really, I really enjoy that, and I think that's probably what I would call a success, right? And um, personally, at this point, it's all about staying healthy. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, completely agree. Love it. <laughs> it's all about being healthy. Yeah. Um, this has been fantastic, Michael. I really, really enjoyed this episode and learning more about you and, and your and your company. Where can you know founders listening in get in touch with you, learn more about you or your company, or if they want to present a company they have? You said you know based in the Europe or or Israel. Any companies out there that want to get in touch? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, look. So LinkedIn is probably the easiest one. You can also try me on Twitter, and otherwise our website has a ton of information, you know, and if I'm not the right person for you, I can pass you on to one of my colleagues in one of the other regions. But I think if anyone listening is uh, part of an exciting company that's doing well and is contemplating a, uh, let's say, Series B fundraise, I'd love to have a chat. Okay, awesome. We'll add your LinkedIn and Twitter to the show notes as well as the website. If you guys want to reach out, make sure to say hi to Michael. Thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you joining today. Akil, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.